Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. I'm Kyle, as of yet, your intrepid host as we enter the 40s in episodes. Uh, This is episode number 40, and as I said in the prequel uh, uh, episode last month, this month of July, uh, we are going to be covering the American Revolution in three parts, triparte. We are going to do... Part one this week, where we talk about the lead up to the American Revolution, we'll cover uh, the the events that went down that helped spark the flame of revolution in these American colonies. We'll go up to the signing of the Declaration of Independence for this episode. Uh, next week's episode, we will talk about the uh, war itself, uh, the battles, the people, this, that, and the other thing, the important events that happened during the war itself, the actual conflict and the fighting. And then two weeks from now on part three, we will talk about the ending of the war and we will talk about the repercussions of the war here, there, and everywhere as a spoiler alert, brand new nation, these United States of America tries to find its way in this brave new world. That is the plan this week. I don't have a whole heck of a lot to talk about otherwise. Just wanted to lay out the format. We are going to go through this in three parts. It'll be the longest and most uh, detail-oriented, I should say, of any of the shows that we've ever done. So I truly hope that you've strapped up and you're ready for a historical story and a ride. There's going to be a whole lot of... Uh, I'm assuming, as I speak about what I'm going to talk about, I don't, you know, when you listen to my podcast, you know I don't have a a complete and utter script in front of me. I often just outline what I want to talk about and follow myself along and just sort of talk. Um, Going through it like that, I'm sure we'll have a lot of sidetracks and missives and what have yous because it is a somewhat complex web that leads us to why this uh, particular revolution happened in the first place and in how it took place, this, that, and the other thing. So sit back, relax, enjoy a little talk this patriotic month of July in these current contemporary United States of America and hear the tale of how the place that you live now, probably, if you're one of my listeners, if you are one of my uh, French listeners, then thank you very much. You will hear about how your people helped out my people in this particular type of revolution. But for the most part, if you are an American listener, you're going to hear the story then over the next three weeks of how America came to be. Guys, Knowledge from the Couch Podcast, Episode 40, The American Revolution, Part 1. Stick with me.
All right, guys. So the American Revolution. Like I say in a lot of these podcasts, uh, context is king and uh, of anything we're going to talk about, and especially something we're going to talk about in an absolutely great detail, context is extremely important when talking about the American Revolution. So these these 13 British colonies had been around for uh, quite a while now. Uh, the British presence in the United States, what would now, you know, we know as the United States, but in the, the new world at the time, started in the very early 1600s. And over that period of time, the, the English uh, influence grew its way from, you know, all the way as north as Massachusetts, which was actually Maine nowadays, but Massachusetts owned uh, that territory, all the way down into Georgia in a series of 13 uh, separate colonies, uh, the westward border being basically the Appalachian Mountains and the eastern border being the, um, you know, Atlantic Ocean. Uh, the rest of the stuff west of there was basically owned by either France or Spain, depending on where you're talking and who you're talking to. But at this point now, we've reached the 1760s, so we're getting pretty close to when the American Revolution started. And France and the United Kingdom or Great Britain or the the Empire, the British Empire, uh, these two just do not, absolutely do not get along. Uh, many, many, many of the wars fought um, between Europeans were often fought between the French and the English. Uh, for some reason, they just really, really goddamn hate each other, and this was um, this was no different. There was fighting to be done in the New World over who owns what territory here and there, because one of the biggest things about the New World is that there's all this, you know, this it's just this resource-rich, gigantic continent. Whereas if you think about, like, Europe, Europe is, is old, um, established. You basically just have people everywhere. There's really not as much to go around. Um, and then you just go a hop, skip, and a junk across the ocean. And all of a sudden, you now have just, just near limitless amounts of stuff that you can have. So you start colonies there. With your citizens, they get the benefit of just being able to live in the wide open countryside with all just as much shit as they can possibly gather. Um, and then, you know, continue to grow your presence in that way. And in return, hopefully, you know, you gain more of a foothold and resources for your empire back home. And this was the case with both the British and the English. And it came to a head in 1754. When the Seven Years' War, or as we, if, if you were a person who went to school here in the United States, you will probably actually have it referred to as the French and Indian War, took place from 1754 all the way up to 1763, uh, a conflict that basically pitted the, the it was, it was basically, you could think of it as almost a Vietnam-style proxy war in the United States between two empires that lived across the ocean from where they were fighting. So instead of just fighting like in France or in England or somewhere around there, they instead took the fighting, which did happen there as well, but the, the vast majority of the Seven Years' War on American soil, the French and Indian War, all this fighting took place 
on this side of the ocean, and it was between the British, who the American colonies basically were British colonies, so those who were fighting in the British um, side of the war, uh, the colonies therein were, you know, loyalists. They were considered British citizens fighting against the French army, the French people, um, and a a collection of Indian allies of the French, like the Iroquois, for example. And this fighting, like you said, went on from 1754 to 1763, so a pretty long and protracted amount of time between there, and it was a bloody, bloody, terrible conflict. Um, it, it basically ended in favor of, of the English, so we're talking about the 13 colonies that would eventually become the United States, so they were on the winning side for this war, and it eventually ends in um, the 17, the early 1760s with just all kinds of losses on either side, but because the French lost this particular war with the British, they had to cede a great deal of their territory um in the Americas to the British when it came to the uh, the signing of the treaty, a lot of that territory being what is now Canada, uh, both French Canada and regular Canada, and you know obviously to this day that Canada is a is a um, Commonwealth nation of the uh, United Kingdom, so it was British basically from this point forward. So you have this just just giant ridiculous war. Um, France has to give up a whole bunch of territory to the English. The English start, you know, taking it over, doing whatever they want to do with it. And everybody is super duper mad about how this whole war went, especially those people who were living in the actual colonies where the fighting took place. You can imagine that the British Empire basically said, hey, we're sending troops over from England to the United States, our standing army. And we are going to also, you know, buck up troops from the colonies and we're going to join forces and we're going to go fight this war for, you know, seven plus years. And it's going to be awesome. And the colonists are like, that doesn't sound awesome because you're fighting a war in our backyard and you don't have to, you know, face the consequences of a wartime thing in your own backyard. And was like, whatever, you're a colonist, like you're our bitch. You have to do what we want you to do. So the war you know, went on, and then as the war ended, those who lived over here in the United States or in the colonies at the time had to deal with the fallout from the French and Indian War. One of the biggest things that was nearly a direct um, line from war to revolution later was the fact that the British crown doubled its debt fighting this war. Wars are expensive, that is something that has never, ever, ever, ever changed in history, nor will it ever change as we go forward in the future. Wars are an expensive hobby, an expensive pastime for any nation because you have to raise funds to pay professional soldiers, to pay for equipment, to pay for this, that, and the other things, supply lines, and everything in between that you can think of. War is an expensive, expensive thing, and the British crown doubled their national debt. Well, seeing as the British crown was super into trying to pay this debt off because they didn't want to, you know, have that anymore, guess 
who they decided they wanted to get some of that money from. If you guessed the American colonies, you would be 100% correct about your assumption. Not only did the British basically say, hey, you guys have to fight this war for us, they then said afterwards, hey, you now have to help pay for the war that we just fought. Sorry, your land is all fucked up, a bunch of you guys died, and everything is stupid, but we are also going to need a bit of a fee from you guys to help us pay for the war. And you can imagine that even among loyalists to the the British Empire, that this was not at all a very popular call. So in the uh, immediate aftermath of the French and Indian War, the British Parliament, the one over uh, across the ocean in London proper, passed a, a series of different sort of taxation acts that they wanted to help, you know, take and recoup the money lost during the war and basically take all of that out on the colonists that lived over overseas. Um, these acts included the Sugar Act, the Currency Act, and most uh, popularly um, and well-known, the Stamp Act of 1765. So the way these worked were... Um, the Currency Act basically said, hey, when you pay for stuff, you can't pay us in your bullshit colonial paper money because it's going to lose its value, whatever, this, that, and the other thing. You have to pay us in proper, you know, either in precious metals like gold and silver or you have to pay us in proper like British pound sterling that we use over here. The Sugar Act basically was just a duties tax on uh, imported sugar and other things of that like, so that basically if they're, you know, any sort of, it's basically a tariff to, to take some off the top that would then go back to the British Empire. And the Stamp Act was basically a stationary type act, so anytime um, any uh, uh, documents were going to be printed, whether that's just regular old paper pamphlets, or newspapers, or even playing cards, or any of that type of stuff, they had to be printed on a certain type of paper that had a, a stamp on it, a British stamp that showed, hey, this is the official, you know, stamp of the empire, and, you know, that means it's good or whatever. The problem was, obviously, that these businesses had to, were forced by law to purchase this particular type of stationery to do whatever it was they did when it came to printing stuff. And you can imagine that if you were a business type person and you were told by somebody, hey, we still want you to do all the stuff you're doing, but you have to make sure, guys who print stuff, that you only print stuff on this very particular type of paper or types of paper that has this big old official stamp on it. And this made a lot of people very angry. They all knew that this taxation stuff was a bunch of total bullshit. They were basically taking out their debts on the American colonists without really giving them anything in return. And when you look at it historically, the colonists didn't really object to the taxes in terms of the price they paid, although that was never a popular thing among any of them. They really more objected because of the entire no taxation without representation the big um basically war cry of the early pre-revolutionary days was that the british empire was forcing these taxes on british colonists who considered themselves just as much british citizens as those who lived across the ocean in great britain proper 
a lot of them had actually migrated directly from Britain proper over to the uh, American colonies and were straight up British citizens. And a lot of them felt, hey, we are as British as you are. Why are you taxing us like as much as you're doing? And on top of it, why the fuck don't we get a say in this sort of this sort of situation? They were basically putting taxes on people and then saying, by the way, you have no say in these taxes and you have no say in, in anything at all. We, you are just our bitches. You are our colonies. You just have to do what we want you to do, and you don't get to say shit about it. And you know that was one of the big rallying cries. It was it was unfair that a a a parliament, you know, thousands of miles away across a gigantic blue you know ball of water, telling them what they could and couldn't do, and weren't even giving those that were they were telling what they could and couldn't do a voice at all in any sort of, 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 of democratic style, um, you know, akin to the parliament that existed over in the British Empire. Now, this is the point where the British crown, uh, held by George III at this time, was starting to really wax and wane its particular type of powers. Now, the, 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 the king or queen of the country at the time was still the the head of government and did hold a great deal of power at this point but since the um in the 1600s when um you know the english crown was taken for a, for a short period of time and, and made into the commonwealth with oliver cromwell a story we may cover in the future um and then returned uh later on back to a british monarchical style ever since then the monarchy was not nearly as powerful as it was in days past, you know, in 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 antiquity. So at this point, the the parliament in England is probably at least as powerful, if not more powerful, than the actual monarch, King George. But King George still had quite a say in the situation, and it was just it was just a bad deal for the the American British colonies. They were said, you know, they were they were pushed these taxes against them, and they weren't allowed any say. Uh, about it at all. Uh, Benjamin Franklin actually testified across the ocean in Parliament in 1766, saying that Americans had already contributed heavily to the defense of the empire. He said that the local governments had raised, outfitted, and paid 25,000 soldiers to fight France during the French and Indian War, which is as many as Britain itself had sent, and spent many millions from American treasuries doing so during that war. Not only that, but because of the way war worked, it, whenever you declared war, you just sort of rustled up people and sent them out. And there were small professional armies, but it wasn't a thing. Apparently, back in those days, a um, having a standing army stationed in Great Britain proper was actually politically frowned upon. So instead of actually uh, stationing that force in Great Britain, they moved them all to the Americas and basically forced the American colonists to uh, pay for and and house these particular soldiers just because they expected them to do so. And a lot of Americans were super pissed about having to do any of this stuff. This then leads directly to the formation of an organization called the Sons of Liberty. Um, it was created in the 13 original colonies here, and it was a secret society that formed to protect the rights of the colonists and to fight taxation that we talked about by the British government. 
the biggest one being obviously the Stamp Act that fueled this thing um, into fruition. You might recognize some of the names of the Sons of Liberty, uh, Brewer Patriot Sam Adams, uh, Benedict Arnold, who we will obviously talk about a little bit in the next episode, but um, before his name became synonymous with treason, Benedict Arnold was a, uh, a as much of an American patriot as, as many of them come. Um, John Hancock, Patrick Henry, James Otis, Paul Revere, um, Benjamin Rush, uh, uh, all of these different guys that you have probably at least heard of in some way, shape, or form, formed the Sons of Liberty organization, um, their motto being no taxation, of course, without representation. So the Sons of Liberty are formed in 1765. They start doing public demonstrations. They start boycotting. Um, They use violence and threats of violence to ensure that the British tax laws that were being passed wouldn't be enforceable because, of course, even though you have these taxes being thrust upon the American colonists like they were, England was still pretty far away from the Americas, and honestly, who's gonna who's gonna enforce these taxes, especially if we give them any sort of resistance? In Boston, the Sons of Liberty burned the records of the Vice Admiralty Court and looted the home of Chief, Chief Justice Thomas Hutchinson to get rid of some of these documents. Um, several legislatures called for united action, and nine colonies then sent delegates to what would be called the Stamp Act Congress in New York City. In October of 1765, to discuss this bullshit uh, taxation, they then drew up a declaration of rights and grievances, stating that the taxes passed without representation. Remember their big, their big saying violated their rights as Englishmen, because, like they said, they still felt like they were English citizens and that they were being pushed around very unfairly. Uh, colonists emph- emphasized their determination by continually threatening violence, using violence, and boycotting imports of British merchandise, instead accepting imports from other nations like France, for example, and the Dutch otherwise. And now the the parliament in England was basically talking about, hey, what can we do to make these colonists just shut the fuck up and do what we want them to do? And guys like Benjamin Franklin, like I was talking about, were over there saying, hey, we just want to be represented um, this Stamp Act is total bullshit. Like, look at what you get to do over here, and then you thrust upon us these taxes on top of the fact that we help you basically win this French and Indian War, and this is what you're going to do. You're going to do us dirty like that. And honestly, the, the funny part was, um, during that particular government that had came to power in England in 1765, a new parliament, they agreed with Benjamin Franklin and his case. Uh, they were basically trying to decide whether or not they were going to actually just maybe repeal the Stamp act and just say it's it's a wash this didn't work out or actually send army troops in to enforce that law franklin said just repeal it you know we 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 helped you so much during the french indian war guys come on be reasonable and in the end it actually worked out they just said okay and they, they repealed the stamp act in 1766 but the caveat they said was hey um we are going to declare that we retain full power to make laws for the colonies, quote-unquote, in all cases whatsoever, which, of course, is the death knell of this entire situation because they're like, we'll repeal this this one time because you argued it really good, Ben Franklin, but we're going to keep goddamn making laws if we feel like it, dude. So, you know, they go back to America, they have the news, hey, we got these stupid taxes repealed, 
and there was a lot of celebration among the colonists. Unfortunately, this celebration would be short-lived because there would be continuing grievances between the British Empire's you know, main uh, source of power and the American British colonies. These would start again the next year in 1767, where the British Parliament passed what would be called the Townshend Acts, which placed duties on a different number of essential goods, including paper and glass and tea, we'll get to tea in a second, and established a board of customs in Boston, Massachusetts, to more rigorously execute trade regulations. So what that all means, because that's a lot of just fancy economic terms there, just, you know, describing what was going to be done. What these acts aimed to accomplish was a lot of the stuff that I just listed, like paper, glass, tea, all that stuff, none of that stuff was made natively in the United States. So because of the demand for those particular products, they had to, had to, had to be imported. And guess where they had to be imported from? If you guessed the United Kingdom, 100% correct. They had to be imported from the British into the American colonies. So not only are you basically importing the same stuff that you were consuming anyway, now there's a new tax on top of those things that you have to import because of their the demand for them, and you're going to end up paying more. And even worse, the money coming from that basically was split into parts. One part goes back. Uh, directly to the British Empire to pay off debts and stuff. So that's one thing. Um, this is just another form of of, of uh, direct taxation, uh, just like the Stamp Act was. The other thing that happened was all this money went to go and pay for um, different judges and governors and all this type of stuff in the New World. So British officials would come over from the British Empire, live in the Americas in, in the different separate colonies, you know, Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, so on and so forth, they, uh, Virginia, you know, they would live in these different places and they would be basically the heads of government. So you have governors installed, you have these judges installed, all this kind of stuff starts to happen and some of this money from these Townshend Acts are paying for these officials' salaries and these officials, obviously quite loyal to the British Empire would then basically help ensure that nothing went wrong and that everything would just go well with the British Empire and that any grievances, you know, that were going to be brought up to them would just be thoroughly um, just knocked away at that point. So this was a double duty thing. These acts generated more revenue for the British Empire in the form of taxation and also helped pay for people who would be in, in positions of power over in the colonies that would then help, you know, stop off um, any sort of ideas that this was unfair. Of course, it's it's maybe a better better idea in theory than it actually was in 100% practice. This then leads to a series of things, particularly because this sort of happens in Boston the most, in the Boston area. So you have the Township Act started. All the wheels are turning. In February of 1768, the Assembly of Massachusetts Bay, uh, the, the, the people doing their business in the harbor there, issued a circular letter going around to the other colonies in the area urging them to coordinate resistance against these acts. The governor of Massachusetts, obviously the one uh, installed in power during these acts, then dissolves the assembly because um, it refused to rescind that particular letter. 
Later on, a riot breaks out in Boston in June of 1768 because of the seizure of a ship called the Liberty, a ship owned by Mr. John Hancock, because they said that they were smuggling goods. Custom officials were then forced to flee during the riot because the riot was getting real serious, which then prompted the British to deploy troops into Boston itself. So now you have all this stuff happening in Boston. You have troops actually coming over to enforce stuff, and you can imagine how this makes people feel. You're getting taxes piled on you. All this bullshit is going on. You're, you're forced to pay money that you don't want to pay to anything or anyone, and now all of a sudden the British Empire is sending troops your way and you have to deal with 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 that bullshit. That's that's really the, the how these things turn from err shake my fist at the air to complete actual real violence. Um, a convention then is assembled, but only makes a mild protest before it dissolves itself, trying to figure out you know hey why are you sending troops in? And then in January of 1769, the British Parliament responds to all this unrest and stuff by reactivating a thing called the Treason Act of 1543, which hasn't really been enforced by any means for a long time, but which called basically for subjects outside the realm, basically anybody who wasn't in England proper, to then face trials for treason and actually come over to England to face trials for treason. The governor of Massachusetts, the guy we just talked about, was then instructed to collect evidence of any of this treason so they could try to bring somebody to court in England about it. Of course, this caused a humongous uh, uh, outrage, you know, among the citizenry saying, well, Jesus Christ, like, what are you doing, man? Like, we're not treasonous. You guys are just being assholes to us, and this is how we respond. Okay. It was never carried out, but the threat from Parliament in Britain was there. This then leads us to a pivotal, pivotal moment in pre-revolutionary America. March 5th, 1770. A large crowd gathers around a group of British soldiers, and you could probably guess exactly how this is going to go. Uh, the crowd grew threatening. They were throwing snowballs, rocks, debris, uh, all this stuff at these soldiers. They did not want them in their town. One soldier actually was clubbed and fell down. There was no order to fire from any of the soldiers, but the soldiers then fired into the crowd anyway. They hit 11 different people. Three civilians died at the scene of the shooting and two died afterward. This event, as you have probably heard, if you uh, ever took a history class in the United States, became known as the Boston Massacre. The soldiers were then tried and acquitted, by the way, by John Adams, one of the founding fathers, was a lawyer at the time, and actually took up the defense of these soldiers in court. A very, very unpopular thing to do, but uh, in the end, really wasn't all that important when it came to the, the questioning of John Adams' particular type of uh, patriotism. But anyhow, descriptions, you know, started to, to, to leave the area and started to, you know, talk about what happened in Boston, this Boston massacre. I mean, really, is a massacre of five people getting killed? I mean, that shit, you know, not to get terribly political or whatever. These days, you have triple the amount of people getting killed all the time in the United States these days for various dumbass reasons. And we don't call those massacres, even though maybe we should. But at the time, five people die. Basically, in, in the eyes of the American patriot, defending their you know right not to be ruled in a military state, um, and this word of the Boston Massacre then is widespread, um, the, the event goes around, and colonial sentiment really starts to turn 
against the British. A lot of mad American colonists really pissed off at what happened in Boston. This then basically, you know, was the death knell of the relationship between Massachusetts in particular and the American colonies and those of Great Britain. Eventually, in uh, 1770, a new parliament or a new government in England under Lord North came to power. And this parliament withdrew all taxes except for the tax on tea, giving up its effort to raise revenue while maintaining the right to tax. This resolved the crisis for a little while, and the boycott of British goods mostly ceased um, only with people who are super radical, people like uh, Brewer Patriot Sam Adams, uh, continuing to just, you know, agitate and poke the British bear. Um, in June of 1772, um, people, uh, uh, American patriots, including John Brown, famously burn a British warship that had been vigorously enforcing uh, trade regulations in the Boston Harbor. Um, this became known as the Gatsby Affair, but nothing really came of it in terms of, of um, possible talks of treason. In 1772, it later became known by the colonists that the Crown intended to pay fixed salaries to the governors and judges in Massachusetts. Sam Adams in Boston then set about creating new committees of correspondence, um, which would, you know, these correspondences would basically link patriots in all the different 13 colonies in sort of a, a sort of a mass email list, you know, the best way to think of it, um, and eventually would provide the framework for a new rebel government. Virginia, which was the largest colony, set up its Committee of Correspondence by 1773, on which people who are famous uh, for being patriots like Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson would serve. Later on, about 7,000 to 8,000 of these patriots would serve on these Committees of Correspondence at not only colonial, but also at local events, and um, these guys basically became the leadership of their local communities, where they would then be the ones trying to make decisions. Uh, any sort of loyalists to the British Crown were excluded from these meetings, of course, because you don't want you know those sort of sort of you know, spy situations going on, um, where you could you know have any of your ideas then disseminated to those who might try to stop you. They then basically used their positions of power to show. You know, the people around them, hey, these are the people who are still loyalists. You should boycott their bullshit because they're not the ones boycotting the British stuff. So they use their influence and power to basically figure out how to push their own particular American-centric agenda uh, going forward. Then later in 1773, some private letters were published um, in which the Massachusetts governor, Thomas Hutchinson, the one who is a British loyalist, was claiming that the colonists could not enjoy all English liberties and that um, his lieutenant governor, Andrew Oliver, called for the direct payment of colonial officials. The letter's contents were then used as evidence of a systematic plot against American rights and then discredited Thomas Hutchinson in the eyes of the people. The Assembly of Massachusetts then recall or petitions for his uh, recall as governor. It's then revealed later that Benjamin Franklin, who was the postmaster general for the colonies, was the one who uh, got the letters and leaked them himself. Um, ben Franklin sort of being the TMZ of his time, um, which led to him getting basically fired by the British in his uh, postmaster general form. But obviously, Ben Franklin was a, a extreme patriot as well and wanted to help do that entire situation. 
So every second, it seems, as we get closer and closer to the dawning of the American Revolutionary War, um, little things here and there are slowly but surely, you know, the pebble going down the mountain, slowly gaining snow and more snow and more snow, and eventually making this massive avalanche-style boulder, you know, uh, of grievances here, grievances there, grievances everywhere. Um, Parliament then passes later on the Tea Act to lower the price of tax tea exported to the colonies in order to help their own East India Company undersell what is tea that is brought in by the Dutch. Now, of course, they weren't boycotting the Dutch tea because the Dutch are not their overlords in Britain. They were the Dutch. The Dutch are like, hey, we're going to sell you tea that is cheaper than the bullshit import tax British tea that you have to buy. India then passes the Tea Act that says, hey, how about you buy tea from the East India Company? Hey, it's cheaper, even though the East India Company is actually British, and they just made it to undersell the Dutch tea. And this ends up pissing off everybody, of course, in Boston, Massachusetts, where a bunch of these patriots were determined not to allow this East India Company tea to ever make it anywhere near the shores of Boston Harbor. Um, in in December of 1773, a group of men laid, led by Brewer Patriot Sam Adams dressed up as American Indians and boarded these ships of the British East India Company and dumped about 10,000 pounds sterling worth of tea from their holds, which is about $636,000 uh, in modern money, uh, and they dumped it all into Boston Harbor. This, of course, would be eventually known as the Boston Tea Party and as another huge catalyst in the um, run-up to the American Revolutionary War. So we're covering all the bases. We continue to move forward. This is really picking up steam in the American colonies saying, hey, I don't think it's not a matter of if we're going to go to war with our, you know, our colonial masters. It's not a matter of if, now it's a matter of when are we going to start the fighting. And so, of course, as we get closer and closer to this sort of fight, you might think, hey, maybe the British will will take it easy a little bit now and maybe just not do as much of the nonsense that they were known to do. Well, instead of that, they decided to pass a bunch more acts to, you know, try to, I guess, take hold of what they felt was the situation over in the colonies um, more directly. These acts would colloquially be known as the Intolerable Acts, which would obviously make the uh, relationship between the British Empire and the American colonies even worse than it already was. These acts were four different laws enacted by the Parliament, and they were as follows— they were one, the Massachusetts Government Act, which allowed or, excuse me, altered the Massachusetts Charter. So basically took away the the Constitution or Charter of the of the uh, colony of Massachusetts and restricted different types of town meetings. So basically trying to stop the power of the people to gather and do what they do. You know, this is a direct shot at those um, American patriots. The second act was the Administration of Justice Act, which ordered that all British soldiers that had to be tried for whatever reason, and obviously there were things like uh, the Boston Massacre that had occurred a few years earlier here, there, and everywhere. You know, British soldiers were the the subjects of, I guess you could call them American terror attacks, and, you know, obviously they would uh, 
respond in kind to those sort of acts. If any of that stuff sort of happened, these British soldiers were then to be arraigned in Britain, not in the colonies. Basically, they're going to be brought into or in front of a jury of their own peers on home soil, which obviously would um, bring about better results for those soldiers rather than in the colonies where, of course, they're on foreign soil and the colonies would be much more ridiculous against these soldiers. The third act was the Boston Port Act, which is completely and utterly closed the port of Boston until the British had been completely compensated for all the tea that they lost during the Boston Tea Party a little earlier. The fourth and final act of these was the Quartering Act of 1774, which allowed royal governors to house British troops in the homes of citizens without requiring permission of the owner. Basically, if a British soldier came and knocked on your door and said, hey, I'm staying here for you know the next three weeks and you can't do shit about it, you couldn't do shit about it. You had to quarter or give quarter to these British soldiers. Of course, this just goes to piss everyone off even further, and in response the Massachusetts Patriots issued what are called the Suffolk Resolves and then formed an alternative shadow government known as the Provincial Congress, which would eventually lead to the first Continental Congress in September of 1774, which consist, consisted excuse me, of representatives from each of the 13 colonies to serve as a vehicle for deliberation and, of course, collective action on what to do next. So at this point, we have the framework for a rebel government being formed, and it's it's all but in writing in particular saying we are going to form our own thing and we are going to fight these goddamn British because look at all the stuff that they're doing to us. They won't stop. They're never going to stop until they have us completely and utterly under their thumb. We have to do something about this. This first Continental Congress then decided that they were going to resist all taxes from the British and boycott every single British good coming in, no matter what it was. Um, and this was continually enforced by new committees authorized by the Congress at the end of 1774 into the beginning of 1775. Now, at this point, war is completely and utterly inevitable. Massachusetts was declared in a state of rebellion later on in February of 1775, and the British garrison received orders to disarm these rebels and arrest their leaders, which led to the first battles of the Revolutionary War, the Battles of Lexington, and the Battle of Concord on April 19th of 1775. These battles uh, in Lexington and then later on in Concord basically took place because the British um, regulars or the army of, of the British that were or coming over to the colonies were basically told, hey, there's a bunch of supplies that these rebels are going to use in the, uh, the area here, and you're going to go grab those supplies. Well, the, the, the patriots got word of this sort of thing and had at least a semi-normal you know, normal idea of how this was going to go down through their intelligence gathering. Of course, this leads to them needing some, you know, amount of forewarning before the British come, which leads to the tale, of course, of Paul Revere, one of by land and two of by sea. You know, the British are coming, the British are coming. That happens during this particular time. Um, in the end, it's sort of a stalemate during these battles. Um, more uh, colonists were, you know, took place in the fighting than, than um, British regular forces, but British regular forces are better trained militarily than the uh, than the colonist rebels. 
although more British did perish and uh, get wounded during these battles, it was mostly a stalemate. This later led uh, in June of 1775, so a few months later, to the Battle of Bunker Hill. Now, during the Battle of Bunker Hill, it was a British victory um, because they were able to take the hill, but it was at great cost, a very Pyrrhic victory, if you've ever heard that um, type of term. Um, about a 1,000 British casualties from a garrison of about 6,000, including 100 British officers, to only 500 American casualties, so about half as many from an even larger force. Um, at this point, the British changed their war tactics because they figured that all these just full frontal crazy head-on assaults um, on foreign soil, basically, um, against an army that knew their land and knew their stuff a lot better than they had uh, originally planned to fight against, um, they could not fight them the way that they were fighting them in these first couple of battles of the war. Uh, later on, the Second Continental Congress, which was now convening, was trying to figure out what's, what the best course of action was going to be. They eventually produced what was called the Olive Branch Petition um, on July 5th of 1775. This was the final attempt from the Continental Congress to avoid full-scale war. Because at this point, there were battles, but they were just basically skirmishes, and, and, and it wasn't a full-blown war at this point. We could have avoided it, maybe. Um, the Olive Branch Petition was the final attempt to avoid a full-scale war between the British Empire and these now united 13 colonies in the in the Americas. Um, they just were like, hey, we, we want what we want. We don't want to fight you guys anymore. Please give us what we're asking for. We will continue to be British, you know, subjects. We will continue to be your colonies if you just will, you know, stop being so bitchy and taxing us the way you do. We will not want to have independence anymore. We will just do what you want us to do. Well, of course, they send this petition to the United Kingdom and George III says, fuck you, you guys are actually traitors, it's treason, it's treason then, he says, and issues his own proclamation of rebellion, which stated that these states were in rebellion and that members of Congress were uh, guilty of treason and were traitors against his crown and that the British army was going to have to take them back by force. Um... In 1776, later on in March, the Continental Army forced the British to evacuate Boston because the uh, the British had Boston in siege at this point for a little while. And George Washington was then the commander of the new Continental Army. At this point in March of 1776, the revolutionaries were now in full control of all 13 colonies and were ready to finally declare their independence. Even though there were still loyalists around, they were no longer in control of anything by July of that year, and all of the royal officials had been ousted and fled. So now the colonies were united in their front and were ready to declare true independence from the British Empire and King George III, which they would later do, of course, in July of 1776. Um, after all these colonies had finally declared their readiness during the Continental Congress for independence, um, on June 11th, a committee was created to draft a document explaining the justifications, because you had to justify stuff, for separation from Britain. After securing enough votes for this passage, this document, which we know now is a very famous historical document named the Declaration of Independence, was written and then 
put up for a vote on July the 2nd. It was drafted largely by Thomas Jefferson. TJ wrote most of this thing and was then presented by the committee. It was then unanimously adopted by the entire Congress on the 4th of July, which is why we now in the Americas celebrate Independence Day on the 4th of July every single year. And each of the colonies then became independent and sovereign nations, basically sort of a confederacy that would then unify and fight against the British tyranny that they had been uh, having acted upon them for the past, you know, 20 or so years. The Second Continental Congress then approved the uh, Articles of Confederation um, for ratification by the states in November of 1777. These uh, Articles of Confederation are basically a precursor to what is, you know, the, the Constitution of the United States now. This is what the uh, the states at this point were following in their governments as as how to sort of, you know, put together their now united colonies and how they were going to govern the uh, entire situation it was all boiled down to though in a couple of sentences in the declaration of independence that would become rallying cries for the entirety of the colonies these words being quote we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life liberty and of course the pursuit of happiness now you know, you may think that it's a little bit ironic that you're writing these sort of statements by a guy like Thomas Jefferson, who very clearly owned slaves. But, you know, it is what it is. The times were a little bit different. Um, the the Declaration of Independence was the first real middle finger to the British Empire, more so than any of the boycotting or any of the other stuff could ever be. This Declaration of Independence was written and thrown at the British, and they said, here you go, deal with this, we're going to make our own government, we're going to make our own Articles of Confederation, and we're united against you, come over here, and if you want us to be your subjects or whatever, you come over here, and you take it from our cold, dead hands, we will fight you uh, wherever you want to fight, we will defend what we hold you know, dear, what we hold to be true, we don't want to be a part of your empire anymore, Come and get us. And guys, I think that's where I'm going to end the part one of the story here. Um, the Declaration of Independence at this point has been signed and sent to the British to scoff at, of course. Um, but now you have the context of how the American Revolution basically came to be through a lot of different things going on in the colonies beforehand. Um, we've reached the point now where the Continental Congresses have um, have come together twice. They've deliberated. They've made the Declaration of Independence. They've made the Articles of Confederation. And already some battles have taken place, but the bulk of the fighting is yet to come. Next week, you guys, on our episodes, um, first of all, of course, um, getting to plug everything. You can find this podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. Um, Google Podcasts has a new app, much like Apple Podcasts, which is now native to um, anybody with Android phones. So instead of, of people who used to be doing the podcast here through Google Play, now you can just download Google Podcasts and literally search and rate and do all that stuff exactly like you would do on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. So I encourage you to do so. You can still find it on Apple. You can find it on Stitcher. You can find it every one of those places still. You can email the show, knowledgecouch at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. You can follow uh, the show on Twitter at The Couch Pod. 
you can um, find us on Facebook, search Knowledge from the Couch Podcast, and join us for a whole bunch of nonsense there. Um, but anyhow, guys, that is um, the end of this week's particular episode. I hope you found it enlightening when it comes to the buildup of the Revolutionary War. Next week, we will actually get into the war proper. We will talk about the people. We will talk about the the battles. We will talk about the big stuff that happened in between you know, the beginning of the war, which is basically already started, through the end of the war. And then two weeks from now, we will talk about the uh, the repercussions of the American Revolution and where this young United States goes from there. Guys, thank you so much for listening and, and coming with me for this um, this this first of three-part episodes on the American Revolution. I hope you enjoyed the content. Um, yeah, you guys, be nice to each other. Learn a little bit about history. Read some books sometimes. Maybe go to your local shelter and adopt a cute animal because that's fun to do. And of course, live long and prosper. <laughs>